Welcome to the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. It's episode three. We're talking Ready Player One. I'm H.A. Conrad, here with my co-host. This is Alima 2, and we're going to dive into the uh, super nerdy Ready Player One book. Super awesome. Super awesome. Ner- <laughs> the super fantastic nerdy Ready Player One. Um, we've got a pretty cool infinite crossover today. What are we doing, Conrad? We are doing Wade versus Scott Pilgrim. In oh my the, gosh. In the infinite crossover chamber. I think it should be a pretty interesting contest and debate. And if that's not cool enough already, we've got a really fun top five today. It's, we're counting down the top five, um, our favorite top five nostalgia media. Right. And we're hmm, we're playing with the term media a little bit, I'd say. I Well, at least I did in my top five. <laughs> <laughs> we, I think we just had a hard time f- just squeezing it to one genre. And we wanted to share a lot of our... We got really nostalgic this week. Wanted to share a lot of our favorite stuff. So it'll be fun. Great. I'm like, it's a good show ahead. So let's I'm do it. I'm very excited. Yeah. So um, how did you... How did you discover Ready Player One? Actually, it was recently, and I'm, I, admittedly, I'm surprised that I had not heard about it before, given my, my nerdy, geeky tendencies. I wouldn't call myself a gamer, but I have had obsessions with certain games um, in my life, um, and as a lot of people who have seen my Atari photo can attest, <laughs> um, this is you know something that definitely is deeply imprinted on my personal psyche and yeah. experience. Um, if you haven't seen that photo, go to superfantasticnerdhour.com, click on About, and there you'll see Conrad in all of her Atari glory. glory. <laughs> <laughs> um but I was actually at my partner's birthday party, and a, a very good friend of ours, Dan Gottesman, mentioned Ready Player One. And he even said, I'm surprised you haven't heard of this, Conrad, and recommended it. Um, and then you, Ali, also mentioned it to me. So I picked it up on my handy-dandy Kindle, and I couldn't put it down. I finished it in a day, I think. Which is kind of normal for Conrad. One of the things I'm envious of is your superpower of just gobbling books. You you are able to read books at a very fast pace. I'm a pretty slow reader, um, so I'm always very jealous of your super ability. Well, it's, I mean, it's a couple of things. I have a commute that allows me to have uninterrupted reading time, mm-hmm. and depending on how interested I am in a book is also part of the, the reading factor. Yes, I think I read faster than a lot of people, but I think it also is helped along if the book is something I'm into. And this was was definitely a book I was into. Yeah, and I think <laughs> so. that, that'll be a lot of people's kryptonite is trying to read something that's boring. Uh, having been in school for so long, I can definitely attest to that. Um, you know, I had I found out about Ready Player One a long time ago. Hmm. Um, back in I think the book came out 2011, um, and or was it 2010? I think it's 2010. 2010. And it was uh, a lot of people and a lot of podcasts I listened to were talking about it. Oh, no, it. you're correct. 2011. 2011, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I first heard about it on This Week in Tech, Leo Laporte's uh, awesome podcast. And um, I looked at it. I um, I was in a book club with my roommates in grad school at the time, and I kept bringing it up. And they were like, no, no, we no, let's actually read some more classic literature. So we didn't get around to it. And... Um, 
I was always putting it off because it had been hyped so much in my mm. mind. So many people were talking about how this is like the ultimate nerd book and you must read this. How have you not read it? And um, a good friend of mine on Twitter, uh, well, a good find a friend of mine in real life and also on Twitter, uh, Josue Cardona, who's at Geek Therapist, um, sent me a tweet a couple weeks ago and said, hey, have you read this yet? And I said, no. And he kind of pressured me into it by saying, let's do um, let's do a Twitter book club. So if you look up hashtag geek book club, I think uh, our tweets about this come up. So that's kind of how I how I got into it. What really sold me on it is when Josue said, uh, well, Wheaton does the audiobook." <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm not the fastest reader, but I'm um, I just uh, gobble up audio and I have a really good memory for for listening to things. So I listened to the audiobook in on my commute, which is shorter than yours. It's about 15, 20 minutes. But um, my listening time would extend <laughs> throughout all hours of the day because I was hooked on this book. So you you audiobooked it as opposed to reading it. I did. And you you read it on uh, ebook. Right. I read it on my, my Kindle Paperwhite. So neither of us really read it in paper, which I think is fitting with the story. Right. Yeah. Um, I should also, we should also mention the author of this book is Ernest Klein. Mm -hmm. um, and he is admittedly and obviously, um, you know, uh, into pop culture and is obsessed with certain things um, such as Back to the Future and, and video games. And obviously this all... This the book, music of the 70s. Right, and music of the 70s, of the 80s. Of the 80s yeah. um, and this this book is definitely, um, I don't want to call it a, a fanboy's homage to all these things, but it kind of is. And It's a celebration. It's a I celebration. It's a celebration of all of the things that he loves, and as, he is um, a nerd among nerds, um, and is definitely, um, if at all you have had exposure to any of the things that he likes, there's a good chance you're going to enjoy the book. Right. So without further ado, are you ready to, to do our review? Let's do it. And we should give a spoiler alert. We're going to dive into it. Um, we are going to reveal some plot points. So if you want to remain absolutely novice um, to the story, this is the time to hit the pause button. Go download it on your Kindle or go buy the book, audiobook, um, or... Or the paper book. Or the paper book. Go to your <laughs> paper bookstore, support your local bookstore. Um, but we're going to go into spoiler town now. Okay. Let's go. So what's the, um, what's the gist of the story, Conrad? Well, the gist of the story is the, the world at this, at this point, uh, the year is 2044, um, and basically... The, the earth is not faring very well. Um, you know, all of our... The humans on the earth aren't Yes, faring. the humans and the earth. Yeah. Um, our resources are depleted. It's not... I mean, I, I don't think it would be wrong to call it a wasteland, but it, it's definitely not a happy thing. Um, it's a dystopia. Yeah, it's definitely a dystopia. Yeah, it is. It, and, yeah. and our main The real life is dystopia. Right. Um, and within this world... Um, Oasis, which is a multiplayer online um, game system, it's a simulation system, has been created by uh, th this um, creative James genius, Halliday. genius uh, James Halliday. And he basically has created this. People take refuge in this game because the world is, is pretty horrible. Um, and it's free. 
yeah. for people to be in this world. Um, and pretty much anything you want to do within this world, you can do it. Um, there, you know, people and there's currency within this world. So it brings to mind things like Second Life mm-hmm. and, and things like that. It's world. sort of a mashup of thing, massively um, online role playing games and things like Second Life and, you know, other stuff that has yet to come. But it's got this cool technology where you have these visors um, that depending on how great your computer system is, they produce uh, real life or near real life imagery. You have these haptic gloves um, or full body haptic suits, which give you feedback on what you're touching and interacting with in the game. So it's a pretty immersive simulation. Right. And I mean, there is currency within the game so that as you do different challenges within the universe, you can earn um, currency and basically use it to buy basically cars and, and food and things within the um, the Oasis universe. And that's how they make money is right. um, you, you have online merchants and you have anything you can buy in the offline world. You buy in the real or you can buy in Oasis. Right. And there's other aspects to it, too, where um, if you want to be able to transport to other planets, um, you can pay to transport uh, and beam instantly there or you can like run there or fly in your craft there and then you can upgrade your crafts and so there's a lot of ways in which you can spend money right and that's important because our protagonist is not a guy who really has a lot of money wade watts is uh one of these guys living in these stacks living in kind of these stacked mobile home kind of things um and he's kind of this 18 year old kid who um spends a lot of his time um as parcival in Oasis. Right. Um, and the creator, James Halliday, of this whole world, um, the the premise or the, the whole the whole sort of challenge behind this book is that the creator has died. And when he died, he left a video will basically saying that anybody who could collect three keys in Oasis and basically go through three gates um, related to these keys would inherit his entire fortune, which it's in the billions, and also a controlling stake of his company, which also means that they would be in charge of the whole Oasis. So, of course, in this terrible world, everybody wants to do this. It's very much um, a Willy Wonka That's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. Um, Yeah. And a golden ticket, if you will. Um, And so Wade Watts, or Parzival, I guess we should call him as well, um, he is one of the people that um, is just dedicated to finding this. And he and other people who are trying to, to do this are called Gunters, which is a combination of, of egg hunters. So it's, you know, the Easter eggs within in the universe. Um, so and, this, the story really takes off from there. You, right. You're following Parsifal. Um, he has, he's got a friend named H., um, it's his encounters meeting up with this uh, person he's following on on the blogs um, and YouTube, which still exists in, right. in this world, um, called Artemis. So he's a big fan of Artemis. It's their adventures. You got the uh, villain that comes into play, which is the IOI company who's trying to take control of the Oasis. And it's kind of a race to the end to see who picks who's going to find the Easter egg, but also the adventure and the journey that Parsifal goes on. Right. So um, I'm, I've really, really been curious um, to hear your thoughts on on the book. What did you 
how did you like it? What what was your experience reading? I, you know, I honestly, it was delightful to read. I enjoyed every second of it. Um, there were little mentions. Um, this is a geek after my own heart, I guess, is the way <laughs> to put it. Um, but um, he mentions certain like different films and even different bad films in a nostalgic way are sometimes great. Um, one of the one of these things that he mentions is Lady Hawk. He mentions that film, in, and that's a Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer film. Mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer, actually, as well. Mm. Um, and it was terrible, but terribly great. <laughs> um, and I just love that he he threw that mention in there. Um, there's a, there's a war games aspect. There's a big of this. war games moment, which I um, know is a, a, a movie that's really important to your partner. It is. It yeah. is. Um, and I like that that movie as well. That's yeah. you know I love that movie. Um, but you know, there's all these things that, that, quite honestly, were part of my growing up. Part of the part of what makes me the person I am today. He pretty much hit on all of that, um, and you know, set my nostalgia factor. Just kind of like keep my, it kept like pinging, pinging that piece of my psyche. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, including the video games, like he mentions, yeah. and some of like uh, I don't know, like the music he mentions yeah. and things like that. Um, it really, I just enjoyed this book from beginning to end. You know, you're talking about nostalgia. There are, you know, Pac-Man is a big part. Um, Schoolhouse Rock, um, Godzilla, Ultraman. Um, there are so many references. Joust. Um, Joust. There's, you know, a lot of moments. Back to the future. Back to the future with the DeLorean. Um, Blade Runner is mm-hmm. features in a key moment in this mm-hmm. book. So um, you're absolutely right. The nostalgia was pinging and pinging and pinging. You know, so I started reading the book and um, really got interested in um, this world he had created, the virtual world he created, Oasis. And one of my favorite things about this book is how that world works. I really want to, I wish I could spend some time just just exploring it because he has a really, he, he kind of devised an amazing way to make these worlds interact with each other. Right. Where there's certain zones and you could be in the Star Wars zone, zone where force exists. But if you travel from the Star Wars zone to the Star Trek zone, the force is not going to work anymore. Right. And and then, and then there's certain zones where magic and science all work together. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's an example of um, like if you take if your spaceship breaks down in a magic zone, um, you might have to hire a wizard to come and cast a spell to get your get your ship fixed. And I, I love the way these different genres got mashed up and there was a, a logic to how they were going to interact. There was, and it was a well-thought-out universe. Mm-hmm. He really put a lot of work into this and into how a person would interact in this sort of universe, how they would make connections. Um, for example, the main character, Wade Watts, him and his friend, H, often meet in this this basement that H has created and it's basically a secret meeting room invite only. Yeah. And you can have private meetings in there. Nobody can, can access this. So you think, um, (laughs) but it's, you know, people creating these little pocket places of safety for themselves. 
Um, it's really just all explained very well. I was left with, you know, you're always left with a few questions Mm -hmm. in in these sorts of stories because it's so very detailed. Mm -hmm. But, oh my goodness, I felt like his research was just incredible. The labor of love that the author went into um, is is really touching and striking. Um, Just um, how much he shows so much respect and love to these different movies and books and games and reading it this was part of my hesitation why i didn't want to read the book at first because i want you know i've i've heard this before Lee, you'll love this this is for you and i've heard that with big bang theory uh so that's gonna have to be another show because i just cannot it is this is this is a huge (laughs) a huge topic um but i was recently reading an article about big bang theory and um one of the complaints about it is these geeks on that show are hyper intelligent yet also super socially impaired and have a love of everything everywhere in geek and nerd culture and that's not realistic you know, we all like certain things and there's certain things we don't like. And just because someone is a geek doesn't mean they like Game of Thrones and Star Trek and Star Wars and all these video games. So I was afraid it might be something that is trying to play on that idea. And and you know what? It could have gone there. It yeah. easily could have gone there. But I think he kept it pretty focused. He really honors it. He and does. It's not. It, it is kind of um, I, I really feel like it's it's more autobiographical of his loves and that shines through in the book. And I'm glad he didn't try to squeeze in everything. Right. And it does, it is the seventies and eighties kind of time frame. It's a little bit of nineties in there too. There's some nineties here and there stuff that he liked. Um, but it, it's not everything. It's not all encompassing. And I didn't get a lot of the references and there's a lot I, I got, but I, I never felt like it was being inauthentic or it was trying to, um, capitalize on sort of geek culture or anything right. like that. Um, one of the things I did think about it, and, and you know, aside from being a really fun story, a really fun Heroes Quest story, was sort of ideas about nostalgia. In some ways, he's playing with that idea. The main, the main um, creator of Oasis, James Halliday, is a little bit um, cut off from a lot of the world. There's a mention that he may have Asperger's syndrome, that part of why he created the Oasis was because he just didn't feel very accepted within um, the real world, except by his co-creator, Oz, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they call him, <laughs> um, whose name is Ogden, sorry, Og or Oz, I guess. I called him Oz because he took on, you know, a couple of people Kinda mentioned reminds that. reminds um, But um, Ogden Morrow is his co-creator, and even he got estranged from... Yeah. Uh, James Halliday, um, who goes by the name of uh, Anorak. Anorak, yeah, that's um, great. In the, in the Oasis. And it's sort of playing upon this idea. There's some very serious themes within this, and they're explored with James Halliday hiding from the world in the Oasis, and also with, with Wade Watts and some of the other characters hiding in the Oasis. And yeah. That, to me, brought up, you know, it really brought up some things like, why do we like all these things that are so nostalgic? What is it that makes us keep going back to it? And and what is the line? What is the line of really enjoying and just sort of having that moment of, oh, I remember that, Yeah. to hiding in that and not wanting to try new experiences? Well, the, the thing you were talking about with the pinging of nostalgia over and over in this book and how it kept you glued... 
um, that's that's kind of how nostalgia works. Um, the psychologist Jamie Madigan runs this great website, which everyone should check out, The Psychology of Video Games. And he wrote an article re- recently about video game nostalgia. And that really dives into all of this and how nostalgia is it's kind of a part of this psychological immune system where we think of old memories and um, we tend to think about it's not just the video game, but it's the social relationships around it, playing with your friends, playing with a sibling. Like a lot of the memories for me that were being triggered triggered is playing all these video games with my brother because this a lot of the generation of this stuff is a little bit older than me. And my brother was older than me and he exposed me to a lot of this stuff. So a lot of fond memories come up and it's it's a way of reminding you of social relationships that are mm-hmm. important about repairing social relationships, about putting in um, energy into your current relationships. And the other thing about nostalgia is our positive memories tend to fade slower than our negative ones. So what kind of remains years and years later are these pleasant memories of the experiences you had in the past about the stuff that you love. That you're looking at somewhat through <laughs> the rose-colored absolutely <laughs> glasses, um, and what it what it also brought for me, what it brought to mind is, um, and I know this could be <laughs> entering into dangerous territory for a lot of people, but um, when the Star Wars prequels were announced, oh. um, yeah. and they yeah, said, I know where you're going. <laughs> And they said they were going to re-release uh, episode one, you know, all the... All the the um, original trilogy. The original the trilogy. special editions. In theaters. And yeah. everybody... Fantastic trailer. Right. And everybody If you've only was, seen Star Wars on TV screen, you have it. Seen it all. Da, 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 da. And I did. I had that love of excitement, as did many of my friends. Uh, yeah. We went to, to go... We bought advanced tickets to go into the theaters to see this. Waited online at midnight um, to see episode four. And then we sat down and it wasn't the Star Wars that we remembered because it had been altered. Mm -hmm. And this was not the Star Wars you were looking for. This was not the Star Wars I was looking for. And while I still really enjoyed it and I don't I mean, I definitely had a negative reaction. I just I didn't understand why you would even bother doing this because that's this is what the audiences had come to see was the Star Wars that they remembered yeah. from their childhood. And, and George Lucas had added in some some different things. And, and you know, in his mind, I think he improved it. Um, but I don't think they were quite expecting the reaction from the fans that happened. Um, that From that generation of fans. Right. Yeah. Um, I think other people who had never seen it before didn't quite have that reaction they're kind of like oh that's interesting whatever but people who grew up with that this was an attack on their childhood (laughs) well it was an attack on on nostalgia right and um it's the star wars special editions are a really interesting example of what happens when um you might revisit things that you have very fond memories of and sometimes we watch old TV shows that we really liked and we revisit them and we're like, ooh, this wasn't that good. I'm going to stop because I don't want to ruin my memories of this and because it's different than I remember. And I think that different than I remember is exactly what was coming up for you when you watched the special editions all over again. Well, it was. And then, you know, (laughs) Han shot first and all that fun stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think that that is what spawned things like the people versus George Lucas. 
Oh, that documentary, which yeah. kind of dives into this whole phenomenon. And if you watch it and people are getting so passionate and so upset and they're saying some very, if you were George Lucas, this would be just a horrible thing to have to go through and, and listen to. Not that George Lucas really cares, but I mean, <laughs> um, he doesn't need to to care about that. Um, but I, I know that reactions from some people that had not had this experience watching these films as, as children and it wasn't a part of that um we're kind of like these people are crazy yeah and and but this is but i think that that's why it spawned such a passionate reaction from yeah. people is that this was an assault on their memories their sacred memories yeah and you know as a as a guy who doesn't remember going to see star wars in the movie theater I was less upset about the special editions because I watched them on the TV screen and um, I just thought it was cool to be watching in the movie theater. So my experience was a little bit different than yours. Um, And the other thing I think this taps into is the whole idea of formative years. Right. And um, a lot of research has shown that, you know, your teenage years is when a lot of your social relationships become such a huge part of your life and exposing you to new ideas, new music, new um, uh, media. And the 20s is when things really kind of gel and formalize. I think Star Wars was probably a big part of your formative years and probably a lot of your major memories and experiences and ideas. And it was just a little bit different experience for me. So I didn't have quite as the strong reaction and i think it's george lucas's work i think he can change it however he likes and what's interesting about star wars is um george lucas has had a, a way of reintroducing it into the public consciousness every like 10 years or so well i keeping you, new generations of fans i'm not arguing with in. you i think it's his work but i also think he should leave the originals out there somewhere in some form and he has not done that yeah, so yeah um but back to our subject um, with Ready Player One, I think that this, um, you're correct. I think it it has something to do with formative years, which is why the nostalgia pings go off with this particular book. Um, but because of that and because of, I mean, he, he does cast a pretty wide net in terms of media and things like that. But I think that it isn't as accessible to some people yeah. as it could be, although I think people could definitely enjoy this. But I think that there's a reason why I specifically am reacting to some of the things. It's my, I mean, I don't know exactly how old Mr. Klein is, but I suspect he is a contemporary of mine. It's probably an, <laughs> an exer, you know, and as speaking as a, as a millennial, um, it was a little bit more before my time. However, it was a lot of the stuff I got exposed through through my older brother. And um, it, it, it wasn't inaccessible for me because I understand so much of what he talks about. I mean, he talks about um, a lot of video games I played, a lot of video games I played in, ar- in arcades. And I grew up during that time where you had arcades that had a lot of new games that would cost 50 cents. Mm-hmm. And then it had the cheap games that were 25 cents. And you could go play the older games like Joust, like Pac-Man, right. like, all, like those games. So I, I still got exposed to a lot of that stuff. But I... I got two big criticisms of the book, and one is the accessibility, just like you're talking about. I question whether this is a book that anyone could enjoy if you don't, if you aren't steeped in all of these nerdy things. Maybe, um, but the other thing, I was thinking that as well, and and perhaps that is the case. But I think that that's who he wrote the book for. Yeah, that's okay. That's the audience. People, I don't think, I, and I think he must have written this for all the geeks that 
he knows for himself. Um, this was definitely a labor of love, and people, everybody doesn't, everybody doesn't need to love this. But I think if you are into this, and generally, I think those are the people probably listening to our show. <laughs> <laughs> they are probably steeped in geek culture. You're gonna love it, um, and I do highly recommend it. It's one of the most enjoyable books I have read in a, in a good long while. Um, I know that there were some criticisms that the gaming portions took over the book. I don't agree with that. Um, I think he did a pretty good job at balancing that out. And well, so that even people who don't know those games would be interested. Yeah, yeah, I think so too, because there's um, there's enough description that you kind of you get the gist of it. I don't think that was a that was a, a fair criticism. But um, getting back to what you said, I think Ernest Klein does. Uh, it's a fantastic love letter to the things that he loved. Um, and so that's it's fine if it is if you need to know this stuff to enjoy the book. That's fine because a lot of people have. I mean, this book was a huge bestseller. Oh, Warner man. Brothers has bought the rights to the movie the day yeah. it was released. And, you know, so I think a lot of this stuff is going to change in the movie version. Well, it has to because think of all the copyrights. All the rights, yeah. Um, and I do, I did hear, and I, I believe he even said this, is that the War Games portion it's can't be used. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think they're using Better Off Dead instead of that, which yeah. is also a great film. But, it, you know, the War Games makes a lot more sense in the context of this so book. There's going to be a lot of nostalgia for Warner Brothers properties yeah. in the movie. But here's, I think... I got to want there's two things um, with the way the book was written that um, uh, are criticisms that I need to bring up. One is there's moments where it's exposition, 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 and there's a lot of explaining of things. And I found myself going, OK, OK, I want more dialogue because the dialogue and his interactions with the other people, the other avatars is really interesting. And again, there's a great article on psychology of video games about the psychology of avatars and that stuff I thought was well represented in the book. We don't have time to get into that. But we'll put it in the show notes, but a lot of exposition. Um, and then I also thought the ending got a little preachy without really bringing it up too much. Um, I think the, the book had this whole kind of tone and journey that it goes on. And then right at the end, there's this message about, um, Living the in the real world. Living IRL. And, yeah. And I thought that just kind of, it came out of nowhere, I felt like. It was building a little bit, but I agree with you. It, it was a bit abrupt. Um, and, you know, in some ways for me, it was not as believable about this specific character. Did the exposition bother you, those periods of... A little bit. Um, yeah. Although I feel like if you're going to make this accessible to some people, he does have to explain some of that stuff, because yeah. some of these things have not been... I mean, you've had you've had a resurgence in some of this in a lot of these video games um, people have been exposed to now because there has been that nostalgia factor, yeah. um, especially these old arcade games and things like that, um, and all the emulators that are now available to be able to play these... Um, and you can play them at home. Um, but sometimes it did get a bit long. And I agree. Sometimes the dialogue, the things that I wanted to see were not, they were not as meaty as they could have been. Yeah. Um, but overall, I mean, he had an enormous sense of fun, I think, with writing this book. And that just shows um, for, you know, this is this is now past. But um, apparently in the printed versions of this <laughs> book, he, uh, Ernest Klein, planted an Easter egg, mm -hmm. and there were different words that were misspelled, and 
Um, they basically added up to a clue and, and people needed to, and a challenge and a website and people needed to, um, people needed to, um, people had to go and find those video games and play these things kind of parallel. Well, they had to play joust. They had to play joust. (laughs) And there was three challenges like the, yes. And, and and the winner of this particular challenge got a DeLorean. Right. Oh my gosh. And Ernest Klein drives a DeLorean. So it's, you know, it's all pretty (laughs) cool. This is where, you know, any major criticism I have of the book, I'm going to forgive because Ernest Klein is awesome. Is one of us. (laughs) He's one of us. And I love that. And I love that he created something that on all of this you know it made me kind of revisit a lot of this stuff and i was playing emulator versions of some of these old Mm -hmm. games and i gotta say some of the games hold up and some of them don't don't. (laughs) um i don't know if you've seen uh conan o'brien's series called coolest gamer and so there's a great episode put that in the show notes yeah we'll put that in the show notes and there's a great episode where he goes back and visits old atari games and he's a guy who hasn't played any game so he's totally novice to this and he's playing some of these games and he's like this is the worst thing i've ever done this is my worst day of my life i think only space invaders holds up right but he plays things like pitfall and kind of talks about how horrible this is so that i i still enjoyed that and going back and revisiting this stuff discovering some of this stuff watching some of the movies the nostalgia going off the charts um i i love the experience I had with this book, the things it led me to do, the conversations it started. I think it's um it's uh it's a book that people are going to cherish for really generations to come. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's a lot of fun and um very well written, very well thought out. And any any issues that I have with it are, are pretty minor. Um I I would recommend this to anybody who is who is uh, a nerd like me. So so we give it the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour stamp of approval. Indeed. Um, but um, I don't want to, to let the time get away from us too much, so I think it is time to enter... The Infinite Crossover Chamber. Welcome to the Infinite Crossover Chamber. I like the sound of that. So today in the Infinite Crossover Chamber, our two adversaries are um, Wade... Watts, although I, I think we should call him Parzival in this case. Parzival, I think, fits. And he's going against Scott Pilgrim. Indeed. And we had a little bit of, of a debate. We're going to go with Scott Pilgrim from the graphic novel. Um, and, you know, we'll, we might throw in a little bit of the movie there. Um, they both have, they have a little bit of a different ending, but that's okay. Because our question today kind of relates to all the versions of Scott Pilgrim and... Also, um, Parsifal from uh, Ready Player One. And what is the main question today? The what main is their question battle? is, if these two characters in their own worlds were to do to basically go head to head, which character is more successful in his quest? So on the surface, you're like, OK, well, you got Parsifal who has to collect the Easter egg. And you've got Scott Pilgrim who has to defeat seven evil exes to um, be able to go out with Ramona, Mm -hmm. right? That's the surface level quest. But is there more to their quest that we really see in the stories? Well, right, because obviously, or maybe not obviously, (laughs) I think that there's dual quests going on for each of these characters. So on the outset, yes, these are the... 
the things that they need to go through. Um, in, in Wade's case, it's to to win um, the keys to the Oasis. In Scott Pilgrim's case, it's to win the heart of Ramona Flowers. But it's a lot deeper than that for both of them. And in fact, I think they both have somewhat similar quests, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or or deeper quests, I think that's the best way to put it. Um, because for Wade, it's basically finding some part of the real world or finding something to live for in the real world, having relationships in the real world, um, as opposed to just hiding out in the Oasis. Mm-hmm. And for Scott Pilgrim, I think it is... Sort of confronting who he is, right. the things he's done, the his past relationships. The Accountability. Accountability, the consequences of his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That's the journey that he sort of goes on. Right. And figuring out these things as they're going. Um, so. And, you know, um, I was really, uh, we were originally going to go with um, the holodeck versus the Oasis. And then Conrad came up with this idea. And I loved the idea of mashing these two characters because they're both pinging your nostalgia. And Scott Pilgrim is a little bit more, the author of Scott Pilgrim is a little bit more of my generation. And so a lot of his references are more to the and 90s. And, and the Nintendo generation. And the Nintendo generation and Street Fighter and uh-huh. a lot of that kind of stuff. So for, it was really reading the graphic novel, which I, I love how he's also mashing up manga and oh, yeah. bringing in all these influences. And the movie, it was just pinging everything all over the place for me. Um, so the, these characters, you could also you, you could almost like see them sit down and play a video game together. Like I think they would really get along. They they go on this they go on very similar journeys here, and um, it's I'm having a really hard tough time with this crossover because I uh, I'm not sure who's who who completes your quest better. Well, I mean, I just think. Some of what we were saying in terms of the ending of Ready Player One with Wade and how the the closure and the the preachy the preachy ideal things that happen at the end of the story, where he basically comes out of the oasis, makes a connection with the girl, and and says, "Oh, I have no need to go back to the oasis." However, he has been connecting with her throughout the book. Right. And throughout the story, it's not just at the end, but there is this question of, is this person I'm connecting with? Is this person I'm developing a relationship in real life what they're like online? And that's been an interesting kind of line of research now in psychology is, do we act the same online as we do offline? And it seems like for the most part, we do. But that question comes up Hmm. is... um, are these relationships that I'm developing real? Right. And that's part of the theme. And that that's a little bit different for Scott Pilgrim because he's developing relationships. It's not as much about whether they're real or not, but the consequences of the the people he invests in, the way he invests in people and the Well, and the way he hurts people. The way he hurts people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's off running around with knives chow. Yeah, and, yeah. And, God, you know. I, and yeah, that's one part of Scott Pilgrim. You know, we got a pretty big 
Asian American stereotype. Well, I guess Asian Canadian, I should say, stereotype of a character. That's one thing I don't like about Scott Pilgrim. However, yeah, the way he treats knives. Well, and also the way he treats Ramona, because yeah. he technically is double timing. Yeah. Uh, not it's it is there in the film, but more so in the. It's mm-hmm. a huge central point in yeah. um, in the graphic novel. Yep. Um, and I mean. I think, honestly, you're correct. I think that there's difficulty in this crossover chamber because I think that they are almost equally matched in how they go through their quests and the things that they find out about themselves. I think we're going to have to power up the structural integrity of the crossover. That might help us a little bit. Let me adjust the knobs here. Mm. Did that help at all? No. Oh, okay. Still <laughs> tough. All right. <laughs> Although it was pretty awesome. So, um, but... I, I mean, I think throughout the journey of the graphic novels with Scott Pilgrim, and there's things that surprise you within it and his perception of the world, his perception of Ramona Flowers, um, his his addressing certain things that he's done or has not done, as it turns out in some cases. Um, I think that he goes from being just kind of this, you know, emo little boy to being an adult to being a full-fledged functioning adult who's has to address some of the things that he's done specifically with with um his exes. Yeah. Um it's it's really about that transition from being a teenager to an adult and um kind of realizing um that the things you do have consequences. And I like that story. I got caught up in that story and I think you know, you talk about the idea of resilience and people who have experienced struggles, dealt with the consequences, are able to grow from it, and they, they're stronger moving forward. I think Scott Pilgrim is a guy who really deals with a lot of those issues. Now, now I was actually just going to jump in because yeah. I think I now have a winner in my head. Mm. When you mentioned resilience. Mm-hmm. Because Wade Watts is in the world pretty much alone. His mother is dead. Um, at some point in the book is the rest, anybody who he knows in real life has died. Um, oh my gosh. That came, that was so, I did not see that coming. No. I, my um, jaw dropped. But even before that, he was functioning on his own. He's found a little place, um, in the world to be able to access the Oasis. He's figured out a way to go to school in the Oasis so that he doesn't have to be dealing with awful people in the real world. And he's pretty much had to figure out this stuff. He has done it with the help of his friends in the Oasis. But to me, I think he has to win this challenge because he's had a much longer and torturous journey than Scott Pilgrim has. Um, Scott Pilgrim has his friends. Scott Pilgrim has all these people that, despite him acting like a total tool, are still supporting him, as I guess we would hope people in our world would do that. But, But Wade doesn't have that. Wade is flying around... Having to figure out these things pretty much, you know, not on his own, but he does not have a safety net. Okay, so what I will give you is there's that whole sequence where he goes into IOI headquarters, the the arch enemy of, you know, the arch villain in the book and does some pretty amazing things, really brilliant things there, makes a lot of risks. And yeah, so there he's a pretty resilient guy. Um, the thing with Scott Pilgrim, though, is um, now like secret portals and all of that kind of stuff aside, a lot of his story is happening in real life. Mm, so true. the question for me comes up is, do 
Parsifal's skills translate to stuff that goes on outside the Oasis. I would say it does, because even though the Oasis is the Oasis, you're still interacting with people. And if your premise that people act the same way online that they do in real life, then that takes away that entire aspect. They're interactions. They're just a way, different way of interacting. And I know there's a lot of people that say so- social media and all these things um, make people so that they're not inter- they're they're becoming more and more isolated. But, but that's not what the research is. But I yeah. I beg to differ because you know what there are people that I am now in contact with um, that I went to school with um, my family members that are a world away and I'm still able to be in contact with them in real time. Yeah, I mean the guy, the guy I met Jose Cardona who I met or uh, discussed earlier we first met online and our friendship developed offline because of that i give you that however <laughs> i need to vote scott pilgrim because i just really love scott pilgrim and nice. i'm running out of arguments to defend him we are at an impasse <laughs> we are at an impasse there is no mind meld on today's infinite crossover but i think what we can agree with is we love both characters and i'm wondering if this is just a generational thing cuz i i have such a fondness for scott pilgrim mm. and i'm wondering if it's just the nostalgia is pinging me harder oh no than- this nostalgia pinged me for scott pilgrim too and you know i know that the the film had a lot of critics i love the film i thought I it was amazing film. i can watch yeah. that film so many times and yeah. there's little things in it that i just oh i adore it and it's not just because i adore edgar wright even though I do. Oh, yeah. Um, but no, it's an amazing film. I also think for people, even people, this is the one difference I would say between these two pieces of media. It's more accessible. It's more accessible, yeah. even especially the film. Maybe not so much the graphic novel, but the film is yeah. much more accessible to the general public. I think it's a story of growing up um, that a lot of people can relate to. Um, so we like both. We're going to recommend both. And, um, <laughs> and however, <move> however... <laughs> I think Scott Pilgrim wins. No, Wade Watts wins. Barzival wins. Anyway. <laughs> All right, listeners, please let us know who you think would win and help us settle this uh, super fantastic uh, uh, Ner- impasse. Nerd <laughs> impasse. <laughs> yeah. um, but now we need to exit the infinite crossover <laughs> chamber and move on to our respective top fives. Top five nostalgia media. Um Nostalgia media. I have no idea where this top five is going to go. Well, I mean, this is a pretty broad topic. Um, so you and I may have defined it differently in our heads, which we will see. Yeah. Um, I I took the nostalgia media to be um, things, um, you know, it could be films or TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one thing, one curveball I may throw in here that I may get flamed for. But um Things that are playing upon people's nostalgia, but also presenting um, a time period or um, popular culture uh, in in a nostalgic way in order to ping those little neurons yeah. in everybody's heads and those connections. So um, the two things for uh, that, two rules we had is one, um, which is also a, always a rule of us, things that we discuss in the crossover never qualify for the top five. Right. Otherwise, Ready Player One and Scott Pilgrim would be on the Obviously. list. Obviously. Um, it's a way of us squeezing in more items into our top five <laughs> instead of it being a top seven. <laughs> it's a seven. little bit of a cheat. <laughs> it's a cheat. Yes. Um, it's a little bit of a game genie, if you will. Um, the the other thing is we we wanted our picks to be specifically 
inducing nostalgia, trying to or being nostalgic as opposed to something that we have nostalgia for. So that's a little bit of a thing to remember as how we got to our picks. Right. Um, you want to start us off? Connor? And then we'll also have some honorable mentions. Oh, of as course, because you have a hard time sticking to just five. Another right. game genie cheat. All right. My number five was that 70s show. Oh, you know, I never got into it, but it's beloved by a lot of people. It's beloved. Um, I think, you know, there's a play upon the Brady Bunch generation. There's an interesting thing about that 70s show because it kind of walks the line. There's there's levels of nostalgia in there. There's also some really serious stuff in there um, and, you know, sort of behind the pithy dialogue and the, and the funny comments. There are some very serious things that happens within the show and all within um, the 70s. And um, it definitely it's one of the first things I thought when we came up with this um, with this topic was the show. So what is your number five? Good, good pick. My number five is Midnight in Paris. Woody Allen's 2011 film. Um, I've seen this movie many, many times, and I'm actually a big fan of a lot of the recent work Woody Allen has done. Um, And the main character, Owen Wilson, is really infatuated um, and has his romantic ideals of past eras. And it's actually a science fiction film because he goes back in time and he meets some of these people that he... Um, that he's so infatuated with and realizes that um, the past isn't just um, he, he might have been seeing it with the, with these rosy with this rosy lens and things are actually a little bit different than he thought they would be. And it, the movie definitely plays on a lot of the ideas we were talking about with Ready Player One. I love the movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Check it out. Cool. All right, now to to number four. I'm curious whether we have a mind meld on this one. This is I don't think we're gonna have a mind meld today. Uh, I don't think it's gonna happen. All right, it'll be our first one if we don't. All right, do you want to say your number four then first? Okay, do it. <laughs> My number four is Toy Story three. Oh, good. No choice. way. Did you? Do you have I, some? It's in my honorable mentions. Okay. Okay. Um, of the whole Toy Story series, the third one is my favorite, and. Each movie is playing on nostalgia. Obviously, our love of these toys, childhood, playing with these toys, things like that. But Toy Story 3 is really about um, these times of change that happen to all of us. And the kind of the dialectic between wanting to hold on to memories and the way things used to be, and also the reality of where you are now and how things are changing. Um, It's a great film. I really loved it. The climax of the movie had me really emotional and kind of tearful. Well, I think that was the purpose. And I mean, you know, the toys are going into the incinerator and all that. Everything is a heartstring puller in that, that, that specific film, but also the other ones as well. So no, good choice. Um, It's in my honorable mentions just because I felt it was a little, I don't want to call it too much of a gimme, but um, I Mm. just, there were a few others that I I just had to put on this list. So I get it. I get it. um, So my number four is actually the the curveball. It is MAME, which is the multiple arcade machine emulator. Oh, this is this was your your interesting pick. Yes. And the reason why is because it basically allows people to access all these things that they loved um, in the the Oasis. It is the Oasis in some ways. 
Um, and you're also seeing people using, you're seeing a lot of people who use this, who played arcade games and things like that and bring them back into that state of mind. But you're also, it's also introducing a lot of new people and gamers into this. Um, and I don't know, have you ever attended, um, PAX? No, you know, I've, I've wanted to, and I know some things happened last year with, with stuff that we will, we could get into in another episode. I haven't, I want to though. Um, I've attended PAX East and one of the really just fun and cool things and, and, you know, just sort of shows a sense of community and fun in the gamer community that they do at PAX, or at least they did at PAX East. Um, they have this room where people can bring their, um, their vintage video games and they have all the, um, the system set up so that you can play them there. So if you want to play, um, If you want to play Centipede or, or Super Mario or any of those things, you can play those games and it's purely, you know, it's an honor system. You go in, you say, hey, do you have this game? And they usually do. And then you can go wow. and play that game. And it's so much fun. That is um, really cool. And so this, you know, I feel like MAME is that room, but you're able to do that at home. That, that, this is a phenomenal pick because um, I've wondered for a long time, um, do young people now? Do kids and teenagers now still enjoy these games from past eras and past generations? And um, I'm a child psychologist, so I work with a lot of these people. And what I've come to realize is people are discovering good games from the past. And just because the graphics might not be what we're used to now, if the game is good, people still love it and play it. And it's technologies like this that have allowed that to happen and allow the experience which yeah. is which is cool. good pick i i'm really really struck by how amazing this pick is <laughs> nicely done um number three for me yeah. was dazed and confused ah uh, yeah yeah good pick. um and i'll and i'll say you know dazed and confused actually um you know this it's an interesting film um just because of, I mean, you know, you see a lot of people that end up becoming famous later on in yeah. this film, such as, you know, like, um, it's it's a bit of an American graffiti for the 90s, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, yeah. it, it, you know, it was released in the 90s and um, it was a coming of age film, a little bit more of a comedy, obviously, than American graffiti, um, but it had, you know... Um, Matthew McConaughey and and Parker Posey and, and Ben Affleck and all these other people in it. Um, and it really is a coming of age of these teenagers. Um, and I remember when I saw it um, and I saw it in the in the theater, just thinking how how interesting and, and powerful a film it was. Um, and it, it did tug on those nostalgia lines a lot mm-hmm. um, with with some of the dialogue and with the. Um, with the music, um, with some of the things they do, they play mailbox baseball. Um, so that was my, you know, one of the, I tried to put things on my list that just immediately kind of sprung to mind. Although admittedly it was hard to pare down this list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good pick. Um, number my, we're on number three, right? Um, my number three is it works on two levels. So it is the music video to Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins. 
off their Melancholy and Infinite Sadness uh, <laughs> album. Now that, oh gee, I wonder why you're picking that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Little so, Scott Pilgrim much, Ollie? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, right? It's the the name of the third issue, is it? Scott Pilgrim and the Infinite yeah. Sadness? Yeah. Which is hilarious. Which is fantastic. <laughs> um, so it works on two levels. The reason why I primarily picked it is if you've seen the music video, it's basically an homage to uh, George Melier's original first ever science fiction film, A Trip to the Moon. I mean, the, uh, A Trip to the Moon is something that it's only like 10, maybe 10 minutes long. It's, it's incredibly short, but it was um, it was a first sci-fi film and it sort of imagined these scenes from Jules Verne's novels and what it would be like to kind of shoot out uh, and explore the moon from this cannon that they um, they get shot out of. And the music video kind of replicates a lot of the moments from that. And I didn't get the connection as a when I was a, a teenager and I listened to the song for the first time, but I saw the music video and I was so... Um, so engaged with the look the feel and it it felt nostalgic for an era that i didn't even understand which makes me think of hugo actually absolutely which um which i wonder if that's on your list um <laughs> so i love the music video the second layer that it works for me is um it reminds me of that time in my life when i was in middle school and um I, I just I love that album a lot, and it brings back a lot of nostalgia for me. But the primary reason I picked it was the video. Cool. All right, on to number two. No mind meld yet. What was your number three? Oh, I thought we already did. That. Did we already do yours? I don't remember. Wait, what did we do? We did my. Yeah, I thought we did my. Days and three. confused. Days and confused. All right, cool. Um, so number two for me was Wreck It Ralph. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, only because. When I watch this film, and it's the the gaming things and the references that they make within um, within this um, film, just had me laughing out loud and going, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that!" and things like that. Um, and I actually had to watch it a few times, um, and there just it was a lot of joy. You could tell that that who that the creators must have had in coming up with some of these ideas and dialogues and and little like witty comments um and i just i truly enjoyed it um and it's it it did leave me with a warm and fuzzy feeling and also yeah. made me want to go back and play video games <laughs> it made me want to immediately play super mario kart right uh, or mario kart uh good pick uh, that was a big surprise for me because i didn't see much of the commercials advertising trailers for the movie i ended up catching it on on video um and i loved it um good pick I love I love um, how um, Bowser is in it. I think I know. M Bison from Street Fighter. Um, uh, the the who's the bad guy from Sonic the Hedgehog? Was it uh, Doctor Robotnik? I yep. think is it it. Um, and then it they great. but they also intersplice it with some of the newer games yep. and and you know Halo. So, yeah, with Halo, yeah. so it was pretty cool. Yeah, so cool. All right. Um, my number two is also well, it's it's a video game, um, and it's a uh, New Super Mario Brothers that came out on Nintendo DS, and it came out back in, like, 2006. Did you ever play that? Or oh, no. the, the sequel? Have you seen it? I've seen it, though. Yeah, so it's basically um, 
done with modern graphics, but still in a way that's true to the original Mario Brothers game that launched the Nintendo Entertainment System. And it it completely brings back all the feels of what it was like to play that um, original game. And in a way that is still innovative with modern kind of um, gameplay mechanics. I think it, it brought back a lot of the um, the resurgence that we've seen in these side-scrolling games that mm-hmm. now you can get on Xbox Arcade and PlayStation Arcade and all that kind of stuff. Um, when that game out came out, I played it on my friend's DS, loved it so much. I bought a DS just to play this game, played it that whole summer. Um, my partner in Yuan Lee, she started playing this all summer. We had so much fun playing this game. All right. Now I now I kind of want to play this game. <laughs> it's great. You'll 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 love it. Um, my well, number, number one. one most nostalgic media. You go first. Oh, why do I have to go first? Okay. Um. Uh, okay. My number one pick is the Wonder Years. Uh, well, that is excellent, and I. <laughs> It's on my honorable mentions. I felt, again, like Toy Story 3, I felt like that. Maybe I was trying to avoid having a mind melt with you today. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But no, you're absolutely right. That that is a series that most certainly looks at that time period in a very... And and even the way the narrative is and, and the, you know, the voiceovers, it's very much that kind of a nostalgic thing. It reminds me a little bit of Pleasantville, too. Yeah. Yeah, pleasant. Um, just that is, idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, it's a look back um, at uh, a family that's growing up in in the late '60s, early '70s. Um, it's a show that ran from 1988 to 1993. Um, uh, Fred Savage was the main actor in it, and um, I, I grew up as a kid watching this with my family, and. Um, it takes place in that era and it uses nostalgia. And it, I think that's what worked on like my parents' generation. But also for me, the reason I loved it is it was exploring a lot of the ideas and the things that were going on in my life and what it was like to be a kid now. Um, so it, it kind of, and also deconstructed some of the idealized views of that time and that era. Um, really great series. I think it's out on Netflix now on Netflix streaming. So I think um, people can check it out. But um, that show gives me so many feels and gives me nostalgia for when I it reminds me of when I watched it as a kid with Mm -hmm. my family. So it works on that level. And it's nostalgic in itself of looking back at that era. Mine, interestingly enough, um, it's not as far back as the Wonder Years, but uh, my number one was Freaks and Geeks. Oh, Good pick. Um, short-lived, um, obviously. It's like most Firefly. People, yeah, it needed to be on for apparently, longer. Apparently, I like all these shows that get canceled. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> basically, um, for, for anybody who hasn't seen it and, and likes geeky things, you should watch it. Um, it is um, set in the early 80s, and um, it's basically following this uh, this main character in junior high, but it's it, you know there's a few different groups of people. It was um, you know honestly the start of a lot of people you know now like uh, mm-hmm. James Franco, Seth Rogen, um, is it Busy or Bussy Phillips? Um, I don't know. Jason uh, Jason Siegel, yeah, uh, yeah, Linda Carlini, and you know of course uh, we've got you know Judd Apatow is the mastermind behind this. Yep. 
Um, it was a, it was when I, I remember watching it and just really identifying with some of the things these kids went through. They're coming of age. Um, these, these are the sort of, especially the junior high kids. They're, they're kind of the dorky kids playing Dungeons and Dragons and just, they're, they're struggling with things, but, and they're kind of like, um, dealing with, with puberty, dealing with not being the popular kids. Um, and, but yet still staying friends um, yeah. and loyal to each other. And, you know, there's struggles that they deal with. But um, I very much liked this show. Um, and it was a little closer to home than, say, The Wonder Years for me Yeah. Um, in terms of my growing up. But um, I, I just highly recommend it. I'm not sure if this is on Netflix, but recommend anybody. It's, it's out there on the Internet yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, but it's very good. And I think most people who watch it also feel like... <laughs> Why didn't this continue? Because that's how yeah. you feel when you finish watching it. Um, so even even when you know that it's it was over too quickly, you still feel still feel that way uh, when you watch it a second time. So what a fun list! And um, you know, we'd love to hear from you about what your favorite nostalgia media are. Um, we've got a few more honorable mentions to fire through. Um, I've got the perks of being a wallflower on my list. Mm. The book and the movie. And it it is of this era that, again, hits closer to home of, um, well, it's a little bit before my time, but um, a lot of memories come up. And it's also, it deals with some pretty heavy issues, um, but it's it's a story that I think anyone uh, will be able to relate to about what it's like to kind of grow up and that transition again from being a teenager to an adult. Um, I have a couple of, uh, while, you know, we, we've mentioned them already, but because um, they were on your top five um, but so I'll mention the ones that we haven't said, but, um, the show psych, um, mm -hmm. they basically play upon a lot of pop culture and the nostalgia factor. So they'll even, um, the, the themes of certain shows are about say twin peaks mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and really fun, a fun way of looking at this kind of thing. Um, that reminds me of one of my honorable mentions, which is community. Right. Um, and then, you know, 13 going on 30, which I didn't fully like, but it certainly played Never saw that it. card. Um, and then the reboots of things like Sherlock, Doctor Who, um, not necessarily nostalgic, but definitely they're playing upon the people who grew up with these kinds of th stories. Um, and it, I think it's also they're they're accessible, but it's also, you know, they've got the old school generation really enjoying them. Um, and I actually had one song on my honorable mention list. What is it? It's called um, Facebook Friend by Mac the Electrician. <laughs> I have not heard this song. Um, and we'll put a link to it. You can get it on iTunes. Um, but it is basically this narrative about this about this kid that is unpopular in high school. Like he's in band and he has this crush on this girl. And, you know, she, she doesn't it's not clear whether she treats him badly or not. Um, but apparently she Facebooks friends him and he's like, no way, I'm not doing this because of all the, the pain that I have looking back at this um, this t terrible time that I had growing up, my awkward years and things like that. Mm. And so it's more of a negative view, which is why I didn't want to put it on my uh, on yeah. my top five. But yeah. Cool. I'll but there you it have out. it. Um, I've got Adventureland, The Wedding Singer, ah, uh, Transformers, the first movie, uh, Pleasantville, which we talked about, Hugo, which we talked about. I have a few more songs. Uh, We're Going to Be Friends by The White Stripes. 
Summer of 69 by Brian Adams, Heroes by David Bowie, and of course, Yesterday by the Beatles. <laughs> that's that's a gimme, Ollie. <laughs> Just in case. Um, we had a lot of fun in this episode. It's gotten me really nostalgic. I feel like I need to go play video games, listen to awesome music, and hang out with old friends now. Well, I think that's generally what we should always want to do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> But no, I had a, I had a lot of friend. Uh, sorry, a lot of fun talking about all this. Um, and I honestly, I think this list could probably go on forever. That's yeah, probably why this episode's a little bit longer because it's just uh, it's been so much so, it's so like, nostalgic. It's like the super fantastic nerd hour plus fifteen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in any case, we'd love to hear your comments, your favorites. Um, uh, who you think should win in the yeah. infinite crossover chamber. And um, you can definitely give us feedback on superfantasticnerdhour.com. You can send us a tweet at, at nerdhour. Um, or our personal Twitter accounts. Yeah. Mine is DiePrince. And I'm at Olima2. You can also check me out as the science fiction psychologist on brainknowsbetter.com. So until next time, thanks everybody for listening. And live long and prosper. Indeed. Thank you.